Turn to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. I'm going to give away the theme of the message before I start it. Because I think it's important to see the theme of this passage is unity. And the way our outline will run is the first point will be leading up to unity. Our second point will explain unity and coming out of unity. Our third point will tell us how to achieve that unity. So, we'll get to that in a second. I just want you to know that because it's important to see as we read this passage what we're working toward, what we're working in, and how it comes about. And... I told my wife, I've, I've, my wife, I told Amanda, it's like my wife is like a title, um, my wife Amanda, uh, I feel really clumsy this morning. Part of the reason is I don't have a handle on the practical part of what I'm about to preach. I feel very ineffective in what we're about to talk about. I feel very inadequate to even talk about this. And this is such an incredible passage of Scripture. It's overwhelming. So pray for me as I speak because this is really, there's a weight here. Um, like what your, your everyday dishes, you know what I'm saying? You don't care, you know, if you drop it or whatever. The fine china is a little more precious. I don't want to say that this passage is any more precious than any other passage of Scripture, but I definitely don't want to mess it up. Let me say it that way. I've got my good clothes on today. Okay, let me say it that way. I don't want the dog jumping up on me today. So, um, Okay, so we'll start out a little light, okay, because I need to. How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? It depends, doesn't it, on what kind of Christians they are. Now, if you're in any of these nominations, and we'll, we'll try to hit them all so that we're being equal opportunity. Please don't take offense. It's lighthearted. It's fun. Okay, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? If they're charismatic, only one because their hands are already in the air, right? Okay. If they're Pentecostal, it takes ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Okay. Again, don't, don't be offended. This is fun. Okay. How about a Calvinist? It doesn't take any because the lights will go off and on at predestined times. How many Roman Catholics? Well, none because they only use candles, so they wouldn't be changing the light bulb. This one may be my favorite. How many Baptists? At least 15. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. How many Mormons? Five. One man to change the bulb and four wives to tell them how to do it. How about Unitarians? We choose not to make a statement either in favor or against the need for a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you have found that light bulbs work for you, that is fine. You're invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service in which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long-life, and tenant, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. <laughs> Amish? What's a light bulb? Okay, so we'll stop. 
What if you tried to get all of these groups together to try to change a light bulb? What would that look like? What if these groups tried to do anything together? What could they accomplish together? Probably not much. Why not? Too many different views, too many different agendas, too many different people. And a funny thing happens when you get people together. They tend to come apart when you get them together. And they tend to come apart in a lot of different ways. And unfortunately, this is true of the church. We can laugh at the differences of denominations and cults, but guys, our separation is no joke. Fights, schisms, church splits, power struggles, power grabs and the like are all too common terms in churches. Has anybody ever been part of an ugly business meeting at a church? I've heard some of the worst language. No, let me rephrase that. I've heard people say that they've heard some of the worst language in their life at a business meeting at a church. People pointing, people spitting, people threatening the pastor and saying, we won't support you. So, we just don't work well together as a church. And what I want to address today is, how can we fix that? Why should we fix that? And I think Philippians chapter 2 will tell us. Again, if you've got your Bible, Philippians, we'll be reading verses 1 through 4 at the outset, and then we'll launch into 5 through 11 later. But right now, let's focus on Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And if you don't have a Bible, it is up here, so we'll try to... Give you a few. I think it's very important to engage as many senses as possible to get the truth into your system. If you see it, if you hear it, if you say it. So, let's read it together from the screen up here, okay? So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. God, it is way out of my realm to talk about this because God if there is anybody in the world who feels like they're selfish it is me so I pray that you would help us I pray that you would enable us not only to hear truth God but to appropriate truth into our lives so that we can be unified so that we can accomplish what you've sent us here to do as your church, God. We need your help to understand. We need your help to apply. So we ask for your spirit to do that very, those very things, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I really believe that this is one of those passages that we should probably just read and cover our mouths and just let the Holy Spirit work on our hearts. But I think he's able to do... I think he's able to work on our hearts through the preaching of the word. So that's what we're going to attempt this morning. So we'll look at this amazing passage and see what he would have to say to us. Now, verses 1 through 4 give us an idea as to what God wants from his people. 
especially when it comes to finding common ground. Paul's going to show us a major characteristic of the people of God and how it is to be lived out in our life together. We're going to look at three points, like I said. Point one is the basis of unity. Point two is the basics of unity. And I was real proud of myself up to this point, and I couldn't come up with a good third one. So, point three is the source of unity. I was real tickled with this basis and basics thing. I was really reaching for a B that I just couldn't find. So, we're going to leave it alone. We're going to leave it at source. So, that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, these, these two will come out of verses 1 through 4. And this will come out of 5 through 11, which we'll be in a little bit. So, that's where we're headed. So, let's look at verse 1. Let me go back here. Verse 1 is going to give us the basis of unity by putting forth a list of why the Philippians should work toward unity. And it says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And we'll stop there. So he lists four aspects that flow out of their salvation as the basis for unity. So these four things, one, two, three, four are results of your salvation. And as these results are seen and received and started to appropriate, that'll give us a basis of why we should work toward unity. Okay? And he lists them right there. They are what they are. And it's important to know too, before we jump into that, notice that he says, if there is any comfort, any participation, any affection, sympathy... That if could just as well be translated since. And that's very important. If you are in the building, your head won't get wet as a trainer. You could say, since we're in the building, our heads won't get wet when it rains. Okay? You see what I'm saying? So this if is not if this happens. It's really saying since these things have happened. Okay? That's important to grab before we move on. And the first one is, since there is, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now, I could ask a silly question right here and say, is there any encouragement in Christ? Oh, yeah, I guess. You know, we, we sang about this, this God-man who came down and, you know, had rode on the donkey, went to the cross, resurrected. Can you draw any encouragement from that at all? I hope that you can. As a Christian, this is where your encouragement is going to come from. And that word encouragement is, is a pretty neat word, actually. And um, we're not going to get into the Greek and all that. Is there any encouragement in Christ? The word encouragement... And I've, what do you, well, what's, what's the word that you see in there? Can you draw any courage from your relationship with Christ? Now, what do you need courage for? The ho-hum every day, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you do, but really you need courage for those things, those daunting tasks in front of you, those sicknesses, illnesses, bills that need paid, those things that scare you. You need courage to face the things that scare you. And we find that courage 
in Christ. Okay? Now, Paul, if you'll remember back in uh, the first chapter of Philippians, he told them a lot of things, what was going on with him. He, he, he thanked God for them. He said that he was, his, he was their slave. He praised God for the advance of the gospel. And he says that living is Christ and dying is gain. That was in, in chapter 1. He's counting his blessings and he's sharing that with the Philippians. And he does this to assure them that his hardship, because remember, he's in prison. This is not Paul writing from some cushy office somewhere in Damascus or somewhere. He's in prison, chained to a Roman guard, and he's telling them, draw courage even in the face of imprisonment. Don't despair, but use this occasion, use this time as an occasion to look to God and see how good He is even in the midst of trying circumstances, especially in the midst of trying circumstances. He's saying, don't look at me. What was the, uh, the, the Madonna Avita song, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? He's saying, don't look at me and weep because I'm drawing my courage from the person of Christ. And he's calling them to do the same because he's about to lay something pretty heavy on them. Okay? He's saying, don't look at me and weep. Look at how I'm drawing my courage from Christ. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's saying, look at the benefits that come from your salvation, and let's use those as a springboard into what I'm about to call you to, because he is about to call them into radical self-sacrifice. Just like he would call us into radical self-sacrifice. So he goes from encouragement in Christ to what? Comfort from love. Again, I'm going to ask a silly question. Do you draw any comfort from love? Married people, do you draw any comfort from love? Are you comforted by the fact that your spouse loves you? Are you comforted by the fact that you've made a covenant with your spouse and that covenant won't be broken and you can draw? Comfort is a tricky word because we're kind of shackled to comfort in America. We're kind of, I heard a story David Platt was telling. They, they were, last year, no, it was 2011, they did a day of prayer and fasting once a quarter in their church. They came together on Sunday and that, that particular Sunday was spent in fasting. They announced to the whole church, don't eat tomorrow, don't eat Sunday. And they went to Africa and they were talking about what they were doing and, and they asked the African pastor there, they're like, do you guys ever do any corporate fasting? And he said he kind of put his head down, the African pastor did, and he said, well, we actually spend the first 40 days of the year fasting as a congregation. And David Platt was like, oh, we do four days a year. And we feel like we're giving up something. We feel like we're out of our comfort zone. We're kind of shackled to our comfort in America. We like comfy couch. And when the couch starts to sag, it's time to get a new one because we like comfort. So we can kind of confuse that word comfort. And we can think it means, ah, oh, it just feels good. But comfort is, you ever come in from something I used to love to do? And this is, I'm going to bear my soul a little bit. You ready? I used to love to get out of the swimming pool in the summer, run into the air-conditioned house and be freezing and wrap up in a blanket. I know, I know. Think about it, though. There was comfort in that. Man, I just love to get cold and then just wrap up in that comfort and get warm. You're like, what's that have to do with anything? Nothing. It don't have anything. It's just a, just a picture of comfort, okay? But comfort, like encouragement, is a universally appreciated benefit. And listen... Salvation, your salvation is the ultimate sign that God loves you. John 3.16, right? For God so 
loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Does that bring you comfort? And that comfort comes from the love of God. The epistle of 1 John actually goes on to say that God is love. And as one who's trusted in God and has seen Him as love, we should be greatly comforted. So we've got encouragement and we've got comfort as two of the things of the basis of our unity. And we're going we're to go on with that. From there, we're called to see our participation in what? In the capital S Spirit. Participation in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to believers. Herb Hodges calls the Holy Spirit our stay-within-friend. And I like that because He's never going to leave us or forsake us, and He's right here. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. Now, let me read that again. When we are born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us. And He's not just with us. He is active in us, and He's active through us. Now, we're like, oh, okay, that's cool. No. No, that's revolutionary. That's upset the apple cart, and you look and you say, oh, wait a second, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's God who is doing something with you. It's God who is doing something through you. God Himself. We have participation in the Spirit. That's a pretty good basis to launch forth into unity, isn't it? God Himself. And finally, Paul calls our attention, and I've got to kind of run through this first part because there's so much in the rest of it. You're like, and look, we took the clock down so I don't have a clue what time it is. Okay, no, we, we won't be real long today. Finally, Paul calls our attention to our affection and sympathy. Now, I'm going to put those together and I'll tell you why. Okay. I've included them as one benefit here because they both refer to our inner emotions. The word for affection is literally bowels. You're like, yuck. It's not that kind of bowels. Well, it is, but it's not. To the Greek and Roman mind, the bowels were regarded as the seat of the more violent passions, such as anger and love. But to the Hebrew mind... They saw the bowels as the seat of the tender affections, especially love, especially kindness and compassion. The word for sympathy is literally the bowels in which compassion resides. So they're kind of the same word. They're referring to the same thing. It's kind of like saying somebody is quick and fast. They're both, but that's really kind of one thing. So that's why we've counted it as one. So Paul's saying in this passage again, if there is any affection and sympathy, if there's anything inside of you that feels inclined to love God, if there's anything within you that you know the sympathy of God and you want to show the sympathy of God, if there's anything inside of you going on, that's what we're going to launch out from. Paul is saying, do you feel the compassion and sympathy from the person of God since you are saved? So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is part participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, we have a basis of moving toward unity. You've got these benefits. Okay, You've got these good things that God has given to you. And it's important to know that kind of when we talked last time about, um, what was it? 
uh, a, a life worthy of the gospel is a life of standing, striving, and suffering. It's important to know this like it was important to know standing before you move into striving. It's important to know that this has been given to you before we say what we have to do. Okay? It's real important to know that since we have these things, since we have encouragement, comfort, participation, affection, since we have those things, we can take the step to move towards unity. Okay? Now, I know that's probably clear as mud right now, but we're, we're going to get to it. Now, really the meat of our discussion is going to come in point two here. From the basis of unity, we can get into the basics of unity. Let's look at verses two, and, two through four for the nuts and bolts of what this unity looks like in our everyday lives. I'm going to read them, and I'll try to click them and make sure it works. Complete my joy. Since you've got these things, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is where I am incredibly challenged by this word. Incredibly. Paul has set the table with what we received in our salvation. Now he's going to say, since you have all this, here's what you're called to. And verse 2 gives us the main point of the passage. Paul is calling the Philippians to complete his joy half. What's it say? Verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Just stop there. Being of the same mind. And this point here is the center point of the passage. This is what Paul is calling them to. He is calling them to be of the same mind. The rest of the verse reiterates and reinforces this thought, saying to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The previous verse led to this, and the following verses are going to expound on this point. So this is the point. That's why I put this up here first. This is the goal. Okay? That's, this is the whole point of the passage. If, 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 if I was good at diagramming sentences... I will show you how this relates to this, and this is the main point here. This is the main point of the whole passage, and that's very important. Paul wants them to be of the same mind, but what does that mean? What does it mean to be? Now, we've got 20, 25 people, maybe 30 people sitting here. What would it mean for us to be of the same mind right now? If you're on the same wavelength as me, you're thinking cheese dip. Okay, because it's lunch. No. We're all thinking different things, aren't we? To be of the same mind literally means that we're all thinking the same thing. To have the same purpose. To be unified in thought and purpose. Have you ever seen a group of people who had one purpose? Think of a sports team. Think of like a, a fire crew. Think of, think of the people that you work with at your office or whatever. You've got one goal in mind, or you should. Let me say it that way. People have differing roles, differing responsibilities, but they have one purpose in mind. The sports team wants to win the championship. Now, they may have different reasons for wanting to win the championship. Anybody football fan? Okay, Daniel, I'll talk to you for a second. The Baltimore Ravens won the Super Bowl this last year, right? Now, their quarterback, Joe Flacco, was in the last year of his contract. 
So what was his motivation for winning the Super Bowl? Do you think it was completely pure for the team? Probably not. Joe Flacco was now the highest paid quarterback in professional football. So he kind of had a different goal in mind than just hoisting that trophy to say, look what the Baltimore Ravens did. Joe Flacco's thinking, I am getting paid, brother, because I played a perfect game pretty much, and now they're going to pay me, and sure enough, they did. Now, they all had one goal in mind. It was to win the trophy, but they all had different reasons why they wanted to win that goal. Does that make sense? Now, if we have the same mind, we don't have that problem. I'm not Joe Flacco up here thinking, man, if I nail this sermon today, they're going to pay me, brother. Okay? We're all thinking one thing, and that, that's important. That's what we want to get to. Does the church, does our church have the same purpose? Do we think the same thoughts regarding our goals and ambitions? Are we working toward the same end? Are we really? We talked Wednesday night about the purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? Why do we exist as the body of Christ? Go to Ephesians chapter 3. And we read this Wednesday night. And I think it's... Praise God for His sovereign working. Praise God that He directs His Word. And that this was brought up Wednesday. I think it's awesome that this was brought up Wednesday. It's not awesome that I brought it up Wednesday. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? Because it really prepared the way for finding this one purpose. If we're going to be unified, we've got to have the same mind. We've got to have the same purpose. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. And tucked away in here is the answer. Is the reason the church exists. I'm going to start in verse 7. Uh, of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, verses 9 and 10, we find this. Let me read 9 and 10 again. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through that God's wisdom would be revealed. So that through the church, there in verse 10, so that through the church, now he talked about the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things in verse 9, and he says, so that through the church, this mystery, mystery might be revealed and that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God had this mystery hidden for ages. He realizes it in Christ. He makes us Christ's body. And then he says, look at this. Look at the church. Angels, demons, rulers, principalities. This is my wisdom revealed. That's you guys. That's me. That's us. And that is our purpose. To show the wisdom of God to angels and demons and rulers and principalities and to everybody in the world to be the wisdom of God 
to everybody that comes into contact with us. Which boils down to this, we could really simplify it. You say, well, what's this all about the wisdom, okay? To make God's glory known. That's it. The wisdom of God is a right understanding of God, and a right understanding of God is the glory of God. We, sitting in this building this morning and scattered all over this city, all over this state, all over this country, all over this world, we assemble so that we can show the wisdom and the glory of God to the world and to those who are not a part of this world. That's our purpose. And I didn't charge you a penny to tell you that. I should have. See? Secrets hidden from long ages past, okay? We exist as the church for the glory of God, period. Now, I want to ask you a question. Are we united around this purpose? Is this the glue that holds us together? Or are you here to get a little spiritual lift? Or are you here to increase your stature, reputation in society? Are you here to hope that maybe God will do something good for me? He will do something good for you, but He'll do it to reveal His glory to you and through you. Are you, here, are you here today with selfish ambition? We're going to jump all over that in a second. And let me tell you what, the Holy Spirit of God is like a bloodhound. He will not let go once he latches onto something. And I have felt that this week, guys. I have felt the bloodhound of the Holy Spirit saying, this is for you. Why do you exist, Jason? To make it through another day to pay the bills? Lord God, may it not be so. I exist for the glory of God. Now, if this is not our common goal, our common ground, we will not know unity, and we need not even move on to see what this looks like in the next couple of verses. Get this clear, because without this single unifying goal, we are all pulling in different directions, and what Paul is about to lay out for us will be utterly unattainable. If this, the glory of God, is not the one thing that we're united around. We're wasting our time. Plain and simple. Now let's look at verses 3 and 4. Back in Philippians, I'm sorry. Now when we read verses 3 and 4, try not to laugh, try not to pass out, because it's going to do one of those, one of those two things to you, because it's really unbelievable what he's calling us to. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now <laughs> listen. This is a different version that I'm going to read out of. But follow along whatever version you got. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does unity look like? Unity looks like a group of people who care more about each other than they care about themselves. Unity looks like a group of people who are free from the love of self and do nothing, nothing motivated by selfishness. <laughs> nothing. He just said do nothing from selfish ambition. Nothing. Hmm. Unity looks like a group of people whose chief characteristic is humility. And that word humility is loaded with implications. Now I'm going to write the Greek word up here just because you've got to see it. Is what it boils down to. 
The Greek word for humility is one of them 50 cent Greek words. I mean, it is a big one. I'm going to have to cheat to get it here. Okay, it's T A P at E I N O P H R O. Oh, I'm not done. S Y N E. I'm not even going to attempt to say that. Okay? That's the Greek word for humility. The bare bones definition for humility is an understanding that I am nothing. That's a bare bones definition for that 50 cent Greek word. If you look at the beginning of the word, you see tape. Does that make you think of anything? Tapestry. What is a tapestry? This could be a tapestry if it was a little prettier and didn't have three years worth of food on it, right? <laughs> you could hang it on a wall, right? Or you could put it as a, as a rug down. And so tapestry, this, this is the, the Greek form of the word tapestry at the beginning there. A tapestry is a carpet and it infers getting all the way down to the level of the carpet. As low as you can go. Humbling yourself as low as you can go. Lowering yourself in order to see others as exalted. Without humility, we can never count others as more important than ourselves. We will never see the worth of others until we see our utter lowliness. I believe we bring a, an entitlement type mindset to the Christian table. Well, God should have saved me. Now, we wouldn't say that. But I think we have that attitude sometimes. Well, why wouldn't God save me? Why, why, why shouldn't I deserve to be saved? And listen, a man-centered theology looks at the purposes of God and puts itself, puts himself in the middle of that purpose. Let me tell you something right now. You are not the center of God's plan. God is the center of God's plan. God is radically God-centered. You say, well, that don't sound right. That sounds selfish. It is selfish. And only God can be wholly selfish. So that means that we've got to have a different mindset. We can't be selfish. We've got to be humble. We've got to walk in humility. The greatest thief of unity is selfishness. And I am eat up with it, guys. I am eat up with selfishness. But it's the greatest thief of unity. And we as individuals and as a group, I'm afraid, let me not speak for you, I can speak for myself. I, I'm, I'm filled with it. When my kids want to wrestle in the floor and I'm too tired. When my spouse wants to do something and I'm just like, I don't know. How many times have you had those discussions and you had, oh, I don't want to do that. It's that martyr mentality. Oh. <laughs> and you might even do it, but you're not walking in humility. You're not walking in selflessness. You're, okay. You can have the last two Oreos. <laughs> now listen, that, that, it's funny, but it's not. Because that's how I live most of the time. 
What am I entitled to? Oh, man, I just got home from work. I don't want to do anything else. Let me just sit down for a minute. Can I just rest? Can I just be quiet for a minute? Would you just leave me alone? And we walk through those doors with the same attitude. I'm just here because I like the music. Or I'm just here because I like to hear Moon speak. Or I'm just here because I just feel better through the week when I go to church. There will never be unity with that mindset. Never. We are consumed with self. And this disease of self stagnates our spiritual growth and it divides us from each other. Quickly, let me run through that list again in verses 3 and 4 to reinforce in our hearts and minds what unity looks like in practical application. Unity looks like doing nothing from selfish ambition. <laughs> I'm telling you guys, that's a dagger. Nothing. Do nothing from conceit, which is I can do this and so-and-so can't. Or I'm better than so-and-so. Or can you believe what so-and-so struggles with? I would never struggle with that. In humility, counting others as more significant than yourselves. Huh. Patty, you're more important than me. Anna, you're more important than I am. Do I have that attitude? I don't, guys. I don't. And number four, look not only to your own interests. Now, I love that because it says your own interests are important. But don't just look to them, but look also to the interests of others. The thing about the Bible, guys, is that it will make you completely miserable if you're focused on yourself. I'm telling you, it will make you miserable. You will read the Bible and you'll feel guilt, shame, doubt, and utter helplessness if your motive is yourself. I promise you. And this is good. It's a good thing that it makes you feel that way. You're like, what? We have to come to the end of ourselves and see our complete inability if we're going to make progress in the Christian life. I can't. Guys, I, I can't live the, those four simple things out. I cannot. I am selfish. I do things from selfish ambition. I do things from conceit. I don't count others as more significant than myself, and I don't look to other people's interests. I'm real concerned about mine. And God says, good, because I've got something for you. Which leads us to our last point. The source of you. Now, in my opinion, guys, and this is my opinion, and I'm entitled to my opinion, right? That's what we just covered, right? In my opinion, this is the most precious passage in the entire Bible. I think... <laughs> This is really untouchable. Let me read it. And I'll, I'll read it. You don't have to read along with me because it's long. Well, six verses, seven verses. Have this, mind in your, uh, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hey, if we would get a hold of this. These seven verses serve as a biography of Jesus Christ. And it covers his entire life from eternity past to eternity future. And it includes his earthly ministry. And I'll say it again. It would probably be more fitting for me to just stand here and cover my mouth after reading that. That is powerful. It's amazing. Here you have the picture of Christ Jesus. Now, I would ask you, as an aside, why Christ Jesus here and not Jesus Christ? Think about it. We won't get into it today. Write it down. Think about it. Mull it over. Here you have the picture of Christ Jesus who eternally existed with God in the form of God, emptying himself and becoming human for the purpose of dying for you and me. And after his humiliation, he is exalted to the highest of all places so that every knee will bow to him as King of kings and Lord of lords. But, 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 tucked away in verse 5, we find our source that is our only hope of unity. We, who are naturally selfish and absorbed with our own desires, have access to the only thing that can overcome our sinful, selfish nature. Look at verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you catch that? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is yours in Christ Jesus? What did it just say? Have this what? Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is yours? The very mind of Christ that is the very model of humility. That's what's yours in Christ Jesus. The very same mind that was operative in Christ as he emptied himself and became human and hung on a cross to absorb the wrath of God on your behalf. And you think, well, I could never do that. And you are right. You could never do that. But he did. And since he did, what, what is his, what was his, is yours. Even his mind. Christ's mind is our mind. If this passage doesn't make it clear enough, let me read 1 Corinthians 2.16. You can just write that down. You don't have to go there. Listen. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. <laughs> we have the mind of Christ. You say, I, I, don't know that, I don't know that we can do this. I don't know that we can be of the same mind, have the same purpose. Focus simply on the glory of God. Let me ask you something. What is Jesus Christ focused on right now as he's seated at the right hand of God? He is focused on the glory of God. And that's it. You say, well, isn't he thinking about me? You bet he is, but he's thinking about you as a means to display the glory of God. He's not thinking about, oh, I'm going to give him a mansion. He's going to get to walk on streets of gold. 
Oh, he's just going to be so blessed up here. He's thinking, this one I'm going to hold up as a sign of my wisdom so that my Father would be glorified. That's what Jesus Christ is thinking about your salvation right now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And we have that same mind. We have the mind of Christ. In our Philippians passage, Paul says, Have this mind in yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This mind is yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, Christian, get a hold of that. I feel helpless and hopeless and selfish. And Jesus says, I'll give you my mind. I'll let you think my thoughts. I'll let you line up with me. I'll let you be in unity with me so that we can all be in unity together. It's like you have a bank account that is the mind of Christ. And he has given you a checkbook full of blank checks saying, here, write whatever you want to access my mind. The bank is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You don't have to go to the ATM. I'm going to be here and I'm going to fulfill your request if you're coming and you want my mind. It's yours. The check is signed. It's blank. It's in your hand. Come and partake of the riches of the mind of Christ. And guys, there's no other way to unity. And Paul's saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind. We can't do that in and of ourselves, but we can do it through the mind of Christ. I announce my poverty through my humility, and the riches of the risen reigning king are lavished on me. I can't do what I need to do, but he can. I can't be humble, but he exemplifies it for me, and then he exemplifies it through me. I can't count, I can't count others as more important than myself, but he moves in and through me to do it in ways that I could have never believed. This is the mind that pleases God and brings unity to the household of faith. The mind that is fixed on the sufficiency of the living Christ, which we will celebrate next week through Resurrection Sunday. He is not dead. He is the living Christ, and He is sufficient for whatever you are facing right now. He is sufficient to bring about unity in Living Truth Fellowship, Providence Bible Church, whatever this third entity becomes, through the church of Jesus Christ throughout the entire He is able to bring about unity when we count others as more important than ourselves. He can do it. Pleading with Him to live His life through us so that the glory of God can be revealed to us and through us. This is Christian unity. This is Christian joy. This is the Christian life. And it only comes through the source of unity, which is the very mind of Jesus Christ Himself. Church, put down your deadly doing. Put down your efforts. Quit trying to do better. Quit trying to be better. Despair of yourself and run to Christ for His ability to be made clear to you. Quit trying harder. Quit trying to do it yourself because you will fail and God will allow you to fail until you have bloodied your head against that wall and you say, what in the world can I do? He says, you can do anything you want because I've given you the money. So we've seen the basis of unity and the benefits of salvation listed in verse 1. We saw the basics of unity in verses 2 and 4 and what it looks like. And we saw the source of unity in verses 5 through 11. Now, as we wrap up, What's the application? You're like, that sounds real good. Praise God, I've got the mind of Christ. But I don't feel like I've got the mind of Christ. 
When I get mad, whenever I get mad, when I'm feeling very selfish, let's make it real. Let's make it applicable. Because if we're not careful, this is some mystical experience that only a few super Christians have. This mind of Christ thing. That's definitely not the goal of the Spirit or the Apostle. We are being called to unity by this passage. Again, that's the goal. The goal is not the mind of Christ. The goal is not these benefits. The goal is unity. And that's important. Are we unified? Is that our common purpose? Having seen that the key to unity is humility, we have a choice to make. Two Wednesdays ago, we talked about the need for revelation in our lives. If you were here, we talked about, I think, the greatest need that we have as individuals in the church is a revelation of who God is and what He can do through us. Anybody remember that? I think to properly apply this passage, we need the Holy Spirit of God to reveal the full weight of it to our hearts. So I want to challenge you to do something this holy week. Starting with the day, through Holy Week, we follow the tracks of Jesus in, in His last week of earthly ministry, leading up to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. What I want you to do, everybody sitting in this room, let's be united in this, okay? I want you to do something. I want you to take this week and every day, Read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 at least once a day. That's 11 verses. I think we can handle that, right? 11 verses at least once a day. But that's not all. Don't just read it. Pray. Pray that God would reveal the truth of this passage to your heart. Because we can look at it and say, well, I don't feel it. Well, I don't care if you feel it. This is the truth. And we've got to let the Word of God program what is truth, not what we feel. Meditate. On the humility of Christ through this Holy Week. And ask God to help you see the availability of that humility in your own life. Ask God to help you know the truth of your possession of the mind of Christ. Because He says it is yours. And ask God to unify us around these truths. And not just us, but His entire church. And guys, we may think it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. His plan, His way is perfect, and unity through humility is His plan. May we know it, may we see it, and may we live it as His body, and may He be able to hold us up and display His wisdom and His glory through us as a result. Let's pray.